even when I'm doing speeches, I tend to wing it. But I, I always prepare, of course. I'm respectful to the audience. But I love that saying that um, I don't uh, until I hear what I have to say, I don't know what I think. You know, it's one of those kind of sayings I always probably talk through it. But you sometimes don't know what you think about something until you hear yourself say it. And I think this format and the way you're doing it, these kind of questions, has made me realize a few things even as i'm answering them and almost surprising myself that i'm you know telling you all this stuff but i think you sometimes don't know what you think until you hear what you have to say hi my name is francis lynch and welcome to the living with purpose interviews in this episode i'm talking with ashley reed who has been a leader in the community services sector for over 20 years and is currently CEO at Cancer Council WA. Welcome, Ashley. Thanks for joining me on the Living With Purpose podcast. I'm looking forward to having a conversation about how purpose plays out in in your life. Just as a way of starting off, how how do you introduce yourself to people? Uh, I was giving this some thought as far as I think it's changed over time. when I first became, when I first kind of got my first CEO role, I often used to use the title and it was almost, I think if I reflect on it, it's, I was, I was claiming it, you know, probably a bit surprised to get my first CEO role, you know, and a bit relieved. Uh, and at the same time, uh, you know, thinking that part of who you are is also, you know, what you do and claiming that authority, not just personally, but for the organisation you represent. So I'd often introduce myself, you know, hello, I'm Ashley Reid, CEO of Nagala or CEO of Cancer Council Western Australia. Um, I find myself now more and more uh, just saying, hello, my name's Ashley Reid, I'm with the Cancer Council or I work for the Cancer Council. Um I feel much more comfortable, I guess, in my own skin as far as not having to claim it and using the title. But I also recognise that often the title is important. It's important to sometimes to sponsors, to our supporters, Mm -hmm. to government that we might be trying to influence. Um, There is authority with that title and the authority comes with being the the delegated authority representing the organisation and being able to make binding decisions. So... I use it when it, I think it's useful to pursue our purpose, but it's less about kind of trying to have to claim it as in, hey, I'm the CEO now, you know. <laughs> Interesting that you sort of, you know, almost like that you were trying to um, to claim that uh, title. Can, can you remember that that actually consciously shifted for you at some point or was it just that you noticed at some point, oh, I'm not really doing it anymore? Look, I think it's, you do recognize that you need to be visible um i didn't try and get to be a ceo because i wanted to you know be the boss or be in charge of people i wanted to use my experience and you know hopefully my capability to to drive a purpose-driven organization and to lead people to do good work so i guess i i kind of it wasn't about necessarily ego but it was also i had i very very clearly remember the the first few thoughts I had in my first role was one, what the hell do I do now? There's no manual you can open on day one. Um, secondly, that voice in your head that says you might not be up for this. Uh, and I have to admit that probably is still there to some degree. I think it makes the people, the leaders I respect, are the people who have humility seem yeah. to have that voice in their head that says, you know what, you just may not be up for this as opposed yeah. to I know everything and, you know, I'm, I'm king of the universe. Um, I think the, the other aspect of 
of the authority is you recognize that you are actually meant to be visible. You know, um, there's a fine line between enough self-belief to put yourself out there to represent an organization. And often in difficult times, you know, my current organization where uh, a, a public health advocate, so we're you know, up against industry, up against junk food, up against alcohol, up against tobacco, whatever. Um, so quite often you're putting yourself out there as the visible representation. So in some ways you can't be a shrinking violet. You can't do that stuff, you know, kind of uh, mm. silently and, and, and invisibly. Uh, but I'm an introvert. So I also have in, struggled in some ways to remind myself I'm meant to be and I am the visible uh, part and authority of the organization. So I think what changed over time is because I kind of, I, I did own the authority of it and, and directed it for purpose, but you also gain a bit of recognition because you're visible, you gain, you know, people know who you are, they've seen you on the media, they've seen you in meetings, they've seen you on ministerial roundtables. So over time, you don't have to keep claiming who you are because you've become visible through the role. And I think that was where the shift happened. You and I worked together for for a few years, really, together at uh, Mercy Care. And, you know, I know some of your early working history and, and then where you've gone since then. And, like, how, how did you come to be doing the work that you're doing? It was never planned. I, I'm always a bit suspicious of people who seem that they've uh, mapped out and planned a career. I've, uh, most of the people doing that I know doing amazing work you know, didn't really set out when they were whatever a teenager thinking this is the, this is the path for me. Um, the, the other thing that um, I, I always reflect on, you know, humorously, is that no kid anywhere has ever said, "When I grow up, I want to be a CEO." Right? So it's not a, it's not kind of a, a one of those life pathways that people tend to map out. Um, I've done a lot of jobs, some really crappy things, some really amazing things. Um, I've always said yes to opportunity. I think if I reflect on uh, trying to give myself the benefit of being challenged. I think that's part of my nature. Um, I've often taken jobs that I thought, oh, gee, I'm, I'm not sure I'm up for this or will I be able to do it? You know, that kind of fear factor. Um, and the other part, I guess, being, but the fact that I hadn't planned the career, um, I have worked with amazing people. I've had a great opportunity to work with amazing people and also some, you know, pretty not so great bosses as well. Um, and I think over time you you start to realize you don't have to emulate others necessarily. You don't have to be someone else. Um, but when you work with good people, they're the kind of behaviors and principles that you want to emulate. And when you work with people that, you know, maybe don't have those kind of values or, you know, bad bosses, so to speak, you also will, I've also thought, you know what, I'll never be like that. I, I won't emulate that. So you start to make choices about the kind of person you want to be. I mean, you do it in other factors of life. What kind of what kind of father do I want to be? What kind of partner yeah, do I yeah. want to be? Um, and I guess when you're young, you kind of just blow with the winds a bit. And then as you gain experience and, you know, maybe life wisdom, et cetera, you start to make conscious choices. This is the kind of person I wish to be and who I wish to emulate. So I think being given those opportunities and and seeing the kind of people I wish to emulate in some ways does map out your path. And, and for you, was there a sense when you started that working life, that, you know, trajectory to where you are now, was there a point where you sort of started to say, yeah, this is really the type of work that I want to be doing? Yeah, interestingly, I, I kind of always thought I'd make a better 
um, manager slash leader, and I'm still uncomfortable claiming the type leadership. I think you don't get to claim it. Others get to kind of see it in you. You don't get to say, I'm the leader, you know. So that I'm reminded of that saying that, you know, management is authority, but leadership is influence. Um, and I guess when when I was thinking or in, early in my career, I thought, you know what, I, if I continue it as a, you know, frontline practitioner kind of, um, you know, in that way, I am quite literally helping one person at a time. And that is absolutely valuable. And it's, it's, it's incredible work and, and, and privilege for those people who can do it and are good at it. But in my mind, I wanted to have more influence. I wanted it to be more of scale. And I realized that as a kind of, as a frontline worker in whatever field you're in, it, you, you do struggle to have effect on scale. And I knew that in organizational hierarchy, you know, around decision-making, whether it's more senior management roles or roles that are uh, working across governance or policy or just decisions-making around strategy, you've got the opportunity to have influence on scale. And I think early on, I saw that the, the people that were affecting change or great change, not just globally, but even in your own community, are people who understand that if they can work at scale, they can help many more people. And I think that was the transition for me from, again, kind of one-on-one one -on -one being valuable and worthwhile, but considering that I wanted to have effect on some sort of scale. And, and for, is there a, a sort of through line for you in terms of that um, wanting to make change, even though I know you have, like your last two positions are quite different, so being at Nagala and, and now at Cancer Council um, and then even at Mercy Care. So, but, but is that the through line? Is it about trying to influence change? I think so. And I think um, I've always thought, I mean, yeah, there's there's many ways to make money. You know, if you want to make real money, you go and be a stockbroker or, you know, go to Wall Street or, you know, work in finance or something. Um, that was never a draw to me. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm a pragmatist as well. You know, you've got to raise a family and pay the bills. And, you know, it's, it's you know, and I have volunteered as well. So you can do paid and unpaid work. But there are many ways to earn a living. I, I have always consciously... Um, I've, I've strived to earn a living by making a contribution. Um, and that's not trying to claim, you know, that I've changed the world. But I think I know many people that earn a lot of money but don't have meaning or they uh, have accumulated, you know, wealth possessions but still find that they don't make a meaningful or haven't made a meaningful contribution. Um, and the best people I've ever worked with are people who genuinely enjoy getting out of bed every day and trying to make things a bit better. Um, I think sometimes we're all naive in the community and health sector that we want to change the world in five minutes. And, you know, mm. why, don't, why don't politicians understand this could be better? Why don't the community understand, you know? Um, and we all are impatient. So one of the things I love about the sector that we work in is, one, we seem to be eternal optimists because we front up every day thinking we can make it better. Um, and, and the other... The other part is just the, the the resilience and the perseverance that goes with trying to make things better for you, for your community, for your family, for your children. Um, it's it's a huge buzz. It's got it's got meaning to it. So yes, you can earn a living and you can uh, do interesting, intellectual, stimulating work, and you can you know affect change, which is I think what I get the most out of it.
who do you think has been most influential in bringing you into the to the way of living that you are now? Could be recent, could be a long time ago. Look, reflecting on, I did a presentation to Leadership WA recently and, you know, talking to emerging leaders is just the most joyous thing because you're seeing, you know, such optimism and such, um, you know, s- s- uh, people just looking to, to really come into the sector and, and, and make change, but also not everyone gets the opportunity. And I, I firmly believe that people that are in privileged positions like mine, like yours, like people that have been able to be in senior roles or in leadership roles, very few people talk about luck. And I reflect on luck a lot, not because I haven't worked hard and not because, you know, you don't deserve the, the rewards of working hard, but I am immensely lucky to be born into the family I was born into with mm. parents who were supportive yeah. and loving with food on the table and an education. Um, I'm lucky to have not suffered abuse and discrimination. I'm lucky to be born in a first world country with amazing healthcare and, you know, um, the, the, the infinite things that can happen to put you in a position where you can take use or take benefit of opportunity is a hell of a lot of luck. So when you talk about where you are influenced, I know it sounds a bit cliched, but I feel immensely lucky to have had the parents I've had um, as far as never handed anything on a plate. I've worked from crappy part-time jobs to buy my first car to, you know, moving out of home and, and being on your own two feet. And that's not a sob story. That's because, you know, I was very well you know, informed and instructed as a child that if you want to make your way in the world, you've got to work for it. And you've got to put your hand up and take opportunities when they come because they might not come again. So in some ways, influence, I think, you know, from a, from my parents and an immediate family, my maternal grandmother, Dorothy Easton, was a school teacher. She bought me my love of reading and music, taught me piano, gave me books that were always slightly above my reading level to challenge me, you know, those kind of amazing <laughs> people in your family you've you've probably got similar and then in my working life I think I've been immensely lucky and I've I've not really uh, pursued formal mentors but they've kind of come to me at the right times without even the title if you know what I mean Um, people like Michael Rutens from Mercy Care Jeff Zimper um, Ian Carter I'd put on that list for sure helped me so much when I was first kind of you know getting into my first CEO roles um Mike Daub, Ruth Sheen, there's some just incredible people that I've worked with that have been so generous with their experience and wisdom. And uh, I get a big kick out of assisting others with with sharing that experience. Because again, there's there's you often get the, the, the clean brochure version of leadership, you know, the, the nice um, sanitized uh, linear book chapter version whereas it's usually messy and painful and scary and not many people talk about that. And the best mentors yeah. I've had, the best mentors I've had have absolutely admitted that they've had times of disillusionment or they've had times of struggling with, God, I don't know what to do about this or am I going to be able to get through this or everyone's looking at me like I know what I'm doing and what if I don't, you know. Those things, those things are scary and they're often not talked about in in. Um, in reference to being in senior roles or in leadership roles? Like if somebody comes to you and says, I'm in this leadership position and I'm really struggling and what do I do? What do you say? It's actually my favourite question because the first thing I say is that's okay, that's normal, you know. Um, 
it's it's the assumption that everyone's got it together all the time that is actually yeah. you know and I'm, I'm talking in society as well as in you know management and leadership roles um i think particularly for our more junior staff i mean we've got some amazingly sharp smart incredible people at cancer council predominantly female staff so young women that are unbelievably clever and smart and and in some cases lack self-confidence and it always astounds me because you know they're probably way smarter than me in the room um and at the same time giving people encouragement that they don't have to have all the answers all the time and sometimes acting is better than not acting one thing i learned about working with boards is if you boil our job descriptions right down we're being paid to make decisions and you'll be judged more harshly if you don't make decisions if you prevaricate if you're vague if you wish you were you'll be judged more harshly than if you make a mistake and it was a really eye-opening and empowering thing for me to realize that i'm actually being paid to make decisions the delegated authority or in cliche terms the buck does stop with that authority everyone's looking at you to make a decision you're never going to have enough time or enough information or enough resources to make the perfect decision but don't let perfect be the enemy of good mm-hmm. not a military saying but um people are looking to you to make a decision if you make the right one then it's well done team and if you make the wrong one you put up your hand and you own it and you go to the board and that's the fundamental difference about being a ceo in my view and being part of an executive team an executive team gets to kind of collaboratively own success and failure a ceo shouldn't always claim it because it's a team effort but if things go badly you have to own it and it's also i guess why some people legitimately don't want that responsibility in our society and in our culture we seem to have we have an assumption that everyone wants to be the boss or everyone wants to get up the ladder or everyone wants to you know be be higher than their current role and not everyone does not everyone wants that responsibility and it's a you know i I often say to the leadership wa group you know it's when you talk about leadership be careful what you wish for really think about whether you want that do you want the kind of responsibility and challenge and sometimes outright fear that goes with it um there's part there's a part of me that actually really likes that maybe it's the larrikin streak or the kind of um, wanting to challenge myself but it's not right for everyone it's not good for everyone so i think it's one of those things you've got to be careful about your own nature before you say you know i want this role i suppose leadership too not everybody in leadership is necessarily in the CEO role. So, you know, there are executives and, and other people and, and the informal leaders. So there's many people who who show leadership within their work without necessarily even being in a, a role that would necessarily be identified as a, as a senior role. But um, do you think that... Uh, so your experience, has, has leadership on balance been... A good experience for you so being in the the executive roles and the the ceo roles has that been something that has has made sense to you yeah it's a good question i mean i i do struggle for term i think we all struggle for terminology sometimes and i i never say the word leadership meaning the boss or meaning you know a particular delegated role um a ceo has the senior delegated authority to bind the organization so it's it is by definition you know 
the chief of the executive officers. It's a dumb way of describing it, really. Um, it's, probably, it's probably a better title that, that we could come up with. But um, I see leadership in all levels and all roles all the time. Some of the most influential and amazing people in my current organisation do not necessarily have senior delegation, you know, um, from reception to our lodge staff to our volunteer drivers. I mean, people show and demonstrate passion for our purpose and influence and leadership in everything they do. So it's it's incredible. Um, one of the things I've, I've, all, I've reflected on a lot is um, the kind of person that you want to be in those leadership roles. And I'm talking now about, you know, more senior roles, more visible roles. Um, one of my favorite sayings is don't confuse gentle with weak. Um, I think we've come through a tradition of leadership being authoritarian or, you know, raised voice, thump the table type style, probably, yeah. probably too masculine, probably, you know, too paternal, etc. Um, some of the most influential leaders I've seen are the ones who speak quietly and with authority. And, um, you know, I, I think it's a bit like parenting. By the time you're raising your voice, you've lost authority. <laughs> so um, I have tried very, very hard in my role to be a, a, approach it gently. And when we do difficult things, we can still do them well. You know, um, I've had to do some terrible things in my time, make people redundant through loss of services, you know, restructuring, the kind of things that are very pragmatic for organisations, but but agony to do. Um, and the, the very best people I've seen that I've always sought to emulate are the ones that do those difficult things, but they do them gently and they do them with kindness and they, they do hard things well. You can do, you can do hard things brutally, but I think... I, the, when I think about that level of leadership and influence, it's where you do the most difficult things, but do them well and do them with kindness. I wonder whether, you know, in the sense of if if somebody has a, not a certainty necessarily, but they, they have an understanding of, you know, that they have a touchstone. They, you know, I'm going to use the word purpose. I mean, that's that's what this podcast talks about. But do you, do you think if, if you are clear on your why, on your purpose, that that makes those really difficult times and that difficult decision-making any easier? Look, absolutely, and I think that's broader than our work. I think when we feel we have a purpose, you know, to raise a family or to, you know, um, be a part of our community, it's often because you want to make it better for others. It's not necessarily making it better for yourself. But, of course, you know, again, as a pragmatist, when you make your family you know, when you improve the life of your family and your community and your society, you are making it better for yourself. I still think we are, we're, we should be allowed to talk about self-interest. That's, that's I think, a, a powerful motivator. I'd, I'd rather live in a community that was uh, supportive and focused on well-being and was a, a better place for my daughters to grow up. That's self-interest. I have no shame in saying that that's, that's some self-interest, but I can I can hopefully do that and influence that um, in the role I've got and in the, you know, as the person you are. Um, the Cancer Council's purpose is one of those fascinating ones that's really easy to say and really hard to do. So our purpose is to reduce the incidence and impact of cancer on the West Australian community. One line in our constitution. It's bloody fiendishly hard to do, but it is elegantly simple. 
I can explain yeah. to I can explain it to the next door neighbor's kid, and they'll understand. You know, we want less people to have cancer, and if they do, we want them to have a better outcome and a better life. It's not hard to talk about. Of course, it manifests in a whole range of complicated and evidence-based work, from public health campaigns to prevention to support services to research investment. But if when I get when I feel myself getting a bit overwhelmed with that complexity, you know, pandemics notwithstanding, with fundraising going off a cliff and and the whole world changing so quickly, um, when I get overwhelmed by that complexity, I have to remind myself that our purpose is actually really simple. But simple doesn't mean easy. I think sometimes we get we get a bit confused in our society and our culture about wanting to explain complicated things in overly complicated ways as opposed yeah. to can we explain this in the simplest possible way? And I think we can. We I think we, we're getting better at being clearer and simpler. And I've reflected to my board a number of times. It's much harder for me to write a simple report than a complicated one. You know, long, complicated reports are pretty easy to write. You just keep pouring in more stuff. Um, distilling something down to clear and simple essence and strategy and action is actually the most fiendishly hard part. And that's the part, mm. I, that's the part I find the most intellectually challenging that's the part i love do you are you able to describe your your purpose and so not not cancer council but what's what's ashley's purpose so that's a really fascinating one and whenever someone says that what a great question it's usually code for give me time to think right <laughs> <laughs> um Look, I'm, I'm very family orientated. I've got two, between my partner and I, we have four daughters, all teenagers. So, you know, often that's where people give us sympathy because they have four teenage daughters, but they are delightful human beings and we just, you know, we just love them crazily. But I think purpose, I always knew I wanted to be a dad and I always knew, or well, I was hoping I could be a, a dad. And the thought of raising children, um, better than you and i don't mean more successful but you know wiser kinder you know gentler um and the thought of having and, and i see this amazing generational shift my my daughters are way more environmentally conscious way more politically savvy way more um well-being focused than i ever was at that age it's a it's a it's quite a transition from a generational point of view and of course they cop all that negativity of you know being obsessed with social media and you know millennials that don't know how to work and can't communicate and all that negativity you see i find fundamentally untrue you know it doesn't mean they don't need to learn things about the world but i think my own purpose is has been to just to to take the luck that i've had in in my own family and, and parenting that how I was parented and hopefully do a better job and for them to do a better job. And I know that sounds like a bit of a, a legacy conversation, but that's actually why I do the work I do. It's yes to help others, but it's also that so my kids and my family can grow up in a, hopefully a better world than we took on, you know, leave it better than you found it kind of approach. Yeah. And my own purpose, I guess, if I, you know, from a, from a selfish point of view, I really, I have a, a strong desire to be intellectually kind of stimulated, to be challenged. I find myself challenging myself and I'm way more self-critical. I'm way more self-critical than anyone has ever been critical to me externally. Maybe that's another character trait. Um, 
but 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 continually challenging myself to do things that are sometimes pretty scary and and you know that you're fearful of i just find that is a pretty unrelenting drive in my nature for you that that intellectual drive um where, where do you think that where do you think that comes from it's a good question um one thing i don't often talk about um i think i spent a lot of time in my life feeling apologetic that I haven't actually finished a university degree. And it's almost heresy, I think, in some ways, you know, when someone in a very senior role admits, well, you know, actually I didn't finish university. Um, and I felt that was a huge gap for me for a long time. I was basically, in my own mind, continually apologetic, and it made me work so hard. Um, I also realised over time, and I don't apologise for it now, I've been a CEO for over 10 years and well, coming up mm. 10 years and, and have worked in very senior roles, I discovered a couple of things. One is that there's no degree to be a CEO, right? There's no such qualification. Hmm. Secondly, if I'm, I had one of my my most influential mentors say to me, because I was complaining, not complaining, I was saying, you know, should I go back and finish? I feel like it's a big gap. I feel like, you know, others won't maybe respect where I've, what I've come to if I don't have that, you know, that backing or that, that background. And they said to me straight out, have you ever thought about the fact that you had to work way harder to get where you are without a degree than if you had or words to that effect? And it was one of those stop you in your tracks kind of thing. Cause you know, I have worked front counter upwards and maybe, maybe this generation will be the last generation that can actually do that. Cause it's pretty rare these days to be able to go from, you know, front counter up. Um, mm. But at the same time, I, when you talk about the drive to be intellectually stimulated, one of the reasons, I mean, I, I, I did, you know, two years at uni and just I was working long hours, part-time, had no money, you know, wanted to, itching to get out there and earn a living and be independent and all the things that drive you at that age. Um, but I've always been intellectually ravenous. So I could never find a single thing to study that would, that would keep me interested or challenged. It's, it's more that polymath approach, you know, I find myself reading religious texts, even though I'm not religious. I've read philosophy. I've read every classic book I can find. Um, tomes of psychological readings. Um, the list goes on. And I'm not saying any of that to show off. I'm saying that because I find things that I'm stimulated by and I devour them. And it's one of the things I'm stimulated by intellectually in this role. Because, again, there's no, there's no perfect background to become... The kind of or to do the kind of role we do, you are assimil assimilating and distilling complex information all the time. You are working at an emotionally difficult level that the kind of EQ approach about diplomacy and communication and getting others to be motivated and morale and all those things, there's there's no such qualification for any of that. And yet it's the part of the job I absolutely love. So I don't apologize anymore. Um, and I think that that's partly why when I talk about my my drive and or part of the myself that's a drive around being intellectually stimulated is because I just don't think you ever stop learning. And I'm not sure, you know, often the university degree is the kind of ticket in. Um, mm. It doesn't necessarily map out what the rest of your career looks like. And the best people I know are the ones who have just been learning nonstop the whole time. And I think that's 
that's also something I admire in others. So maybe that's a part of me that I often don't talk about, but it's actually a really strong driver. It's an interesting one these days where, you know, LinkedIn, I love LinkedIn for lots of reasons, but one of the things is, you know, you get to um, view and judge people about what their qualifications are and experiences are and everything. And and really it's it's a fairly superficial way of being able to to make an understanding or have an understanding about somebody. And, and, you know, part of it's interesting too hearing you talk about that because I, I, I know that. Um, but it really means nothing to me. And um, but what I understand about you is is you are your even your use of the word drive is interesting because I don't see you as driven, but I think you are incredibly um, uh, you know you've always just applied yourself incredibly at the work that you've done. So you know I don't know if that distinction makes sense to you, but um, yeah. Uh, that's interesting. Thank you. This is like therapy. So thanks. This is great. <laughs> I'll send you the bill soon. Don't worry. Um, what gives you the energy to keep going? Because one of the things you were talking about is is you know the emotional uh, sort of impact and energy that needs to be in the work that you do. So so how do you keep going? What's what gives you the energy there? I was, I was laughing with a colleague recently. You know, it's like busy is the new black. Um, it doesn't matter who you meet now. It's almost like busyness and being, you know, constantly active and on the go is the kind of modern cultural badge of honour. Um, you meet someone and it's the first thing they say, you know, oh, hi, how are you, Francis? Oh, flat out, you know, so, you know, so much on, so busy. It's, it's almost like, you know, uh, and I, I, the reason I was laughing is because it's almost like, you know, when it's a really hot day, uh, you don't want to say how hot it is. Oh, gee, it's hot outside. So, hey, why don't we just admit we're all busy and stop talking about it? You know, it's one of those things. Um, but it, it is, I do I do reflect on that a lot as far as in, you know, the energy that it takes to do these kinds of roles, but also the the need to sometimes think, right? So I have said to my own exec team and my own management team people many, many times, don't, don't apologize for needing time to think time to think is not a luxury it's actually what you're getting paid to do right you're being paid to think and and make decisions and if that means you need to stare into space for a little while that's okay there's this tendency to think that we have to be rushing busy working long hours you know punching the clock and and i i think it's folly it's folly as a society this pandemic has been incredible we have had within two weeks we had nearly 200 staff working from home and we had all those normal concerns about isolation and about what about productivity. Well, productivity went up, right? Mm. In some mm. ways, people were not being micromanaged so much, and they got on with it. They were also yeah. they were also grateful for the organisational trust and the flexibility. People were picking up kids from school and having dinner with their kids that they might not have otherwise had, and not having to do the long commute, whatever it was. And I'm not suggesting this, you know, will continue forever, but the elements of that more flexible and trusting approach actually saw productivity increase. So when people say, where do you get the energy? One, one obvious answer is, you know, the work and the purpose and working with amazing people. Um, but I also think I have become much better at knowing when I need to recharge. Being introverted doesn't mean I'm necessarily shy, but I, I recharge with time alone. 
So if that means I want to get out on the paddleboard or I want to play guitar because you can't think about work while doing it, you know, I've got a motorcycle, I get out on that because you can't talk to anyone, not like in a car. Um, it's, it's those kind of activities that I find I can recharge and I don't feel guilty about them. I think anyone who feels guilty about just lying fallow for a little minute, I think it's a big trap. It's a big trap in, in kind of modern workplace culture that, you know, unless you are perpetually flat out, you're sometimes somehow less of a, less of a human and less of a worker. Um, Hmm. I find I ended, I, 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 I need to re-energize and I do it in those various different ways with music and other activities through reading, writing. Um, but just giving yourself permission to, to think and to not be distracted, get enough sleep. You know, these, everyone knows this basic stuff and it's really interesting even about public health. We all know the basic public health messages, but actually doing them and following them and having discipline, uh, about them. It's also about giving yourself permission. And I, I think yeah. if, if when I talk to younger people thinking about, you know, striving up the corporate ladder and all the rest, um, I often start with not just, you know, be careful what you wish for, but just make sure that you understand the kind of energy needs that it will take and give yourself permission to recharge. You know, I've seen great people burn out and that's a tragedy. In this year, just interesting the comment you made about public health, and and I'm wondering through this experience of COVID nineteen, and you know there having to be you know such a reliance on the skill and the expertise and the messaging of the public health systems. Do you think that's changing the work that you do? Has that made any influence yet? It really has, and and um, we were just reflecting on this on it in our team. Um, being a, we've never had. A public more attuned to public health, right? So it's t- in some ways it's taken the pandemic to have people attuned to public health. But uh, to broaden that, you know, we've been listening to public health experts. We're, you know, we've we've seen more of we've, we've all become armchair epidemiologists. You know, um, we're following national you know, international vaccination trials, and people have a genuine interest because, of course, in a crisis, you know, that's what people are focused on. But the flu season is down around 90% or 95%. Mm. And why? Mm. Because we're washing our hands and staying away from others if we're sick. So you've got a public also relearning some very basic public health messages and, and about hygiene that actually has and will have a, a broader effect on how we operate as a society. Let's listen to the evidence. Let's listen to the people who um, are speaking with authority about good evidence-based practice Um Government had to make decisions and we we agreed as a community on the whole, you've always got the fringes, but we agreed to behave, to have our to have our own behavior curtailed for the greater mm. good. For the greater good. It's 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 actually been quite incredible. We have seen some of our public health messages, whether it's about uh, healthy eating or quitting smoking or you know, uh, reducing your alcohol intake, whatever. Yes, they will will reduce your cancer risk. They'll also reduce your heart attack risk and your stroke risk and diabetes risk and all those other things. But it's we're we're seeing a greater, um, I guess, uptake or a greater um, people listening to those messages because they are more attuned to public health. So it's actually it's you know in some ways, and I'm not making light of the fact it's been a very difficult time for many. It's kind of best of times and worst of times in some ways. Um, but we we have 
seen a shift in public attitude to trusting good evidence-based public health messages, which, you know, from our point of view is, is fantastic. It reduces people's risk and that's what we're about. Absolutely. And, and I suppose there's the opportunity, isn't it, to sort of see, well, how does that as a community take advantage of that over the next two or three years and, and build something from that? I'm wondering, you mentioned before, you know, you've, uh, you know, you, you read a lot, you, you're really interested in learning. Are there any things in particular at the moment that uh, are really giving you, you know, that engaging you, books or podcasts or anything like that? I'm, I've got it on my desk right now. Um, I've, I'm rereading because I've read it once and it's, it's so, it's so dense to read and it's really hard to read is the uh, Daniel Kahneman's um, Thinking Fast and Slow. It's okay. It's just the most amazing book. I I've actually got a notebook next to the book where I've, I'm writing down some of the you know more complicated um, uh, things. Um, but he has an incredible ability to distill very complicated uh, psychological studies about human behaviour into very uh, accessible information. Um, uh, maybe I'm just a bit of a slow reader, but I've read. I'm reading through it again, um, and it is it, uh, when you when you're talking about public health, and for example, you know, evidence about tobacco causing lung cancer has been around for 70 years. Definitive study is is 70 years old this year. It was 1950, and yet people, mm. say, right? Um, we know we should exercise, but we generally don't. We know we should eat well, but we might not. We know we should protect ourselves out in the sun, but we don't. Um, I'm not saying everyone, but generally our public, our behaviours don't match our very simple understanding of evidence. And his work, I think, is it's incredibly instructive as to how humans are not that rational or how they're influenced by, you know, um, things that are not evidentiary or not evidence-based, etc. So when you're working in public health and sometimes thinking, how on earth do people start smoking? You know, it's 50 bucks a packet. It's absolutely proven to harm your health, and yet there is still an element of behaviour that does it. Um, so it's one of those really fascinating things to try and look deeper into human behaviour, which might help us out here in the field when we're actually trying to have an influence on people. So I'm finding myself reading a lot of kind of um, uh, public health, psychological type behavioural stuff at the moment, which I'm finding really, really useful. It's fascinating. Look, we're coming coming towards the end of this conversation, um, which I've really enjoyed. Is there anything that um, is just sitting with you that you'd like to just sort of close off before we finish? Um, no, look, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I, I commend you for talking to different people with different perspectives. Um, one of the best things I got out of doing the Leadership WA program was being exposed to people in a whole range of different sectors and, and leadership roles. Our, our sectors, whether it's, you know, social and health versus agriculture versus mining, they tend to be very insular. You talk to yourself. You talk to the people you know, right? So when you have the opportunity to be exposed to leaders in various roles and sectors, I think that can be the most useful thing. It also, once again, well, to me, it demonstrates there's, there's so much more commonality than difference amongst both people in leadership roles, people in influence roles uh, and in organisations, and we can all learn from each other. So, look, I've really enjoyed it. And the, the, the exposure that you're providing to people with 
uh, are two people with multiple experiences and backgrounds, um, I think is is just fantastic. And the other part of it too, I always reflect on this. I, I, I always take some notes before I speak and then I never refer to them. So it's one of those kind of it's a mental exercise. Um, even when I'm doing speeches, I tend to wing it. Um, but I, I always prepare, of course. I'm respectful to the audience. Um, yeah. But I love that saying that um, I don't uh, until I hear what I have to say, I don't know what I think. You know, it's one of those kind of sayings. I always probably talk through it, but you sometimes don't know what you think about something until you hear yourself say it. And I think mm, this mm. Kind of format and the way you're doing it, um, these kind of questions, has made me realize a few things even as i'm answering them and almost surprising myself that i'm you know telling you all this stuff but i think you sometimes don't know what you think until you hear what you have to say so that's what i'd like to finish on look thanks ashley i i really appreciate the the contribution that you've made and and the conversation that we've had i i know that in the flow of the conversation I, I'm not even sure sometimes where we're going to go. So, look, I really appreciate your trust in, in the process and your trust in me. I, I really strongly believe every person has has purpose and, and has a, a way of expressing their purpose in their life. Sometimes that works for them and sometimes it doesn't. I'm really happy to have understood more about that, to give other people the opportunity to hear that as well. So thank you so much, Ashley. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Francis.